0: Bienvenidos, esto es Diario de a Bordo, una travesía Waldorf. Mi nombre es Juan Pablo Varías. Y yo soy José Tobar. Somos dos profesores de secundaria intentando llevar una bitácora de las distintas peripecias que se presentan en el viaje por la educación Waldorf. En este episodio, este nuevo episodio de Diario de a Bordo, vamos a poder escuchar eh, una entrevista con John Petering. John es un maestro de ciencias, eh, Definitivamente, el área de ciencias dentro de un colegio Waldorf es una cosa muy, muy especial porque se busca realmente hacer ciencia y no solo aprender sobre la ciencia, eh, que es quizás la diferencia más importante que hace el currículum Waldorf. Y pues nada mejor que tener a, a un maestro de ciencias con muchísima experiencia eh, que estuvo en el. Shiny Mountain Waldorf School en Colorado y en diferentes lugares en Detroit, en en Estados Unidos, y que ahora es el maestro de ciencias en en la Escuela Waldorf de Sacramento. Eh, Para mí fue un verdadero gusto poder platicar con con John y hablar un poquito acerca de ciencia, acerca de eh, qué son estos conceptos vivos que busca proponer la pedagogía Waldorf, así que a todos los amantes de la ciencia espero que disfruten este episodio y a los que no son amantes de la ciencia pues que se enamoren un poquito también acerca de cómo es la visión Waldorf eh, que nos hace ser seres curiosos y científicos, que es algo que traemos ya de por sí, innato en, en nuestra humanidad, así que espero que lo disfruten. Hi Jan, thank you very much for being here in Guatemala uh, for the second time for the teacher training. Um, the first question that we ask everyone uh, at first, it's how did you encounter Waldorf education? So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, that's always a good story. <laughs> I, I think it would begin when I set out after completing undergraduate college and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and there were many many options open so I literally packed a few ba- things in my guitar in my car in 1970 and set out and um, followed the connections I had to a place in Virginia Beach Virginia <coughs> And um, they were having a youth conference at this place, the the ARE in Virginia Beach, and they were going to have it in the mountains of Virginia. So I had arranged a place to stay in Virginia Beach, which is on the coast. It's a very pleasant area. And then I had to drive into the mountains. And on the way, I saw two hitchhikers Oh, I picked them up. <laughs> and lo and behold, the one sharker was John Root, who was the son of the Waldorf High School history teacher from the Rudolf Steiner School in New York City, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, uh, done with high school and also figuring out what he wanted to do. So he had come to this conference, too, with his girlfriend, Christina, who they later married. And we drove to the conference. And it was a very interesting conference about meditation and how we could work to make the world better and so forth. And spent a lot of time at the conference, him telling me all about this school he'd gone to in Green Meadow, New York, the Green Meadow Waldorf School and convinced me that I really should go up there and investigate it and find out about it. So one thing led to another, and I finished the conference, went back to where I was staying in Virginia Beach, and decided, okay, I have a little time before my job starts here in Virginia. I'll drive up to New York and find out about this. So I drove up there, and they were having a conference that I didn't know about, (laughs) just a summer conference on the ideas of Rudolf Steiner. Uh, the founder of Anthroposophy. And at the conference, I met this man, Werner Glass, who at that time Werner was the head of the teacher training, which then was located in Detroit, Michigan, which is where I was from. Um, and so suddenly this great circle had closed, and he was like, you... You should come and be a Waldorf teacher. (laughs) He was from Vienna, so he had this very thick Viennese accent. And I was like, well, that wasn't what I was planning, you know. But one thing led to another, and to make a very long story very much shorter, I ended up back in Detroit, where I grew up. Um, I started taking classes at the building that was the Detroit Waldorf School, and realized it was just a few blocks down the street from where I'd lived in a co- co-op with a bunch of other college students, but I didn't know anything about school at the time. Right. So I'd gone through this whole travel and travel and finally <laughs> ended up back just a few blocks from where I'd started with this whole new adventure of the Waldorf teacher training. And I wasn't sure exactly what I really wanted to do, but it, it was, seemed very good. So I did the training, finished it up, And then just as I was finishing it, they were very anxious to start the high school at the Detroit Waldorf School. So uh, since I had a college background and was from science, I was asked would I be one of the science teachers. So I took that on and I taught there for nine years full time. Hmm. So it was a very interesting trip and met many wonderful people. The other little detail i should mention that um, many years later my older daughter um, decided uh, there was no waldorf school where she was going to school in boulder colorado the shining mountain waldorf school at that time ended in eighth grade right. and so we started her in public school and as often happens with waldorf students they suddenly realized they missed waldorf so she was very unhappy so my ex-wife and I decided that we would arrange for her to go somewhere through my connections we arranged for her to be a guest student at the Hawthorne Valley uh, Waldorf School in upstate New York near Hudson Albany up up from Albany and near Hudson New York and there she met and became fast friends with a young lady named Alona Root the daughter of John Root <laughs> And Alona and my daughter both now live in San Francisco, and they are still fast friends. So the whole reason I had to go to Virginia and to go to New York was so that my daughter would end up meeting Alona, who she had to become friends with.
0: <laughs> and you never got to Virginia?
1: Oh, no. I lived in Virginia for a year. I worked as a computer programmer for the city of Newport News for a while, um, and then I ended up going back, and I did graduate school. And Many other things. So, the, the big thing was that I had met this young man on the road, right. and uh, like the story, you know, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, I ended up having many, many adventures, which turned out to be really good adventures.
0: <laughs> nice. And, um, well, talking a little bit about science, because you're a science teacher. <clears throat> um, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit, how science is different in the Waldorf curriculum than in mainstream, and um, like what's the actual approach? Because Waldorf education, it's all, always seen like this um, school full of artists, and that the only yes, thing yes. they learn is art, but that's right. not it.
1: Well, of course, because in contrast to many state-funded or public schools, um, we put a lot of work into making sure we have a very rich um, humanities and arts program. And when a school doesn't have enough money, that's oftentimes the thing that gets cut. Um, Unfortunately, and many, many good teachers really would like to have more art in their school in any case, so we're really not that unique. It's just that we've really made a commitment to say we're really gonna make sure it's there. Mm -hmm. I also teach in addition to the sciences, I'm semi-retired, but in addition to chemistry and physics that I taught, math at times, I also do bookbinding, I did clay pottery, Um, There's another very good potter that we have at the school now, so she does that. But I have done that in the past. And um, I also do some 12th grade art classes. And um, so the arts is a very integral part of our program in Waldorf schools. But the sciences are also, because again, in contrast to many public schools... Students at our school, and Waldorf schools in general, they all take a block in science. So we have chemistry, we have physics, we have biology or nature study, and we have earth science. And so it's not a, a specializing thing. The way in many schools, many students would take a course in general science in ninth grade, perhaps, then maybe biology, but not all the students. And then fewer students maybe might take chemistry because they, th- they want to go on and maybe study nursing or pre-medicine. And then oftentimes, very few students would take physics, maybe AP physics or something like that. So it's kind of a pyramid um, getting narrower and narrower towards the top. And in the Waldorf School, all the students take chemistry ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. I'll take physics, I'll take life science, and there's, a, there's an earth science curriculum that schools offer in various forms. So that's unusual that everyone takes science. It is a challenge for the teacher because then you realize I'm teaching this as uh, food for life, not just professional because you're going to go off and someday become a geologist or someday become a biologist, although you might. So of course I have to teach a very good quality class. So you really are prepared. But I also want to take up subjects in such a way so that you are taking something away in your heart for life. And the times that I talk to a student who's graduated, and they didn't go on into science, but they end up telling me something about how it actually contributed to what they are doing, I feel like, yes, I've been privileged to do my job well and give them really good food for life. Um, Of course, with that, at a deeper level or a more philosophical level, um, Steiner had a tremendously deep connection to science. The university that he attended and where he got his degree was a Technische Hochschule, which is like MIT or Caltech, as opposed to going to you know, some college that specializes in humanities or liberal arts. So he took many courses and was aware of very contemporary, cutting-edge scientific thought in the time he was there in the university in the closing parts of the uh, 19th century. <coughs> uh, to give you one little tidbit, for example, when the Waldorf School opened... He told one of the teachers, ah, I've seen this new book by this man, Wegener, you really should read this book. So the book he's referring to is the first little publication made by Alfred Wegener, who proposed the idea of continental drift, that the continents Mm -hmm. had moved. Mm -hmm. At the time, everyone could not really understand how this could be possible. And so he was kind of ridiculed, and people didn't take it seriously. Until in the 1960s, with a lot of oil exploration, we discovered a lot of new information, and suddenly this became the revolution in geology. This is the cornerstone of modern geology, continental plate tectonics. And understanding why volcanoes are here in Guatemala, and why earthquakes happen the way they do in California, and so forth, all of that was a revolution as big in geology as the Copernican revolution in astronomy. Right. And Steiner was aware of it and said, you should investigate this right around the time that this first came out. So he had a very, very big commitment to science and really high-quality science. But he also took a different road, which is that I want to also develop something more than just an analytic approach I want to be able to develop a way that you can grow into spiritual perceptions. So that's why he called it spiritual science, that we would use the clear modern thinking that we've developed in, in the modern time, modern human beings, but we would now use that to really be, begin to try and connect to the spirit. Right. And this is, of course, Steiner looking at this vast, vast picture of ancient times with human beings where, like when you look at ancient statuettes from Knossos, for example, in Crete, this would be you know 1000 BC. And the statues are staring up at the sky because they're like, I'm waiting for the revelation of the gods. We have a hard time thinking that was real. Um, and that's another discussion, but the point is that was how they believed they got their guidance was from the divine. And now we've lived on the earth and grasped the earth and we can make many wonderful inventions and discoveries about the physical world. And the idea is from Steiner is that we're going to try and reach more and more into understanding and being in connection with the spiritual world again.
0: Yeah, and then mainstream science, maybe those questions are kind of forbidden, right? Like,
1: I mean, sort of. I wouldn't say forbidden, but it's that science has felt, since I don't understand how I could look and perceive and work in that way, I will work and perceive with what I know I can do with my modern thinking. And Galileo, for example, was a, was a leading figure in that area. And, of course, many, many other famous people. Humphrey Davy that we just discussed in class uh, made all these discoveries in chemistry in, in the 1900s. But the, the 19th century, sorry. And the picture that Galileo gives is a very good one, because he's saying, I need to use my thinking to understand this, not because some authority tells me so, which mm-hmm. is what was happening at the time. The church had a certain interpretation, which might not have been totally correct, but that was the interpretation they had of Aristotle, and Galileo says, it doesn't fit with what I see and what I know. And I want to build on what I know, not on some outside authority. And that's sort of the development of the modern situation. So we as teachers are trying to work with the students to help them understand on their own, out of their own thinking, based on the phenomena and the experiments and so on that we do in class. And that's good science, that's good science. The only difference is that we're also thinking that a human being could be more than just molecules and compounds and so on, and your feelings might be more than just some shadow caused by the movement of norepinephrine and uh, serotonin and so on in your brain. So we're thinking that those are an instrument but they're an instrument for something else that's not physical, namely your spirit.
0: Right. In the previous interview, uh, we were talking about uh, living concepts. That's one of the things uh, in Waldorf education that it's, um, I think, very different from a textbook and, and a mainstream approach. It's that you try to to have living concepts um, brought into the classroom. Right. Um, can you give me uh, an example of how, how, how you can teach something as a living concept uh, opposed to what, a, what a, a textbook can tell you?
1: Well, it's interesting because part of the living concept thing Ties into something that is actually there in mainstream education. In the last 20 or so years, there's been a lot of change in the understanding of how should a student learn. What's called constructivism. And the idea that a student should construct their their, their concepts, their worldview. And that you as the teacher are, as someone said, a guide by the side rather than the sage on the stage. So you're there as a facilitator to help make sure that they can find their way and put all the pieces together, so to speak. Um, the difference, though, is I think, rather than just going beyond memorizing, which many good teachers try and do. They go to bigger bigger ideas, meta ideas. But at the same time, we're going in a direction where we're working out of a different picture of the human being. So, for example, um, in 11th grade chemistry, um, one of the things that we're doing there, we call a journey through the elements, the elemental substances. And I, of course, the time's limited, so I can't do all 110 elements, so I pick about 14. So we look at those that make up the air, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen. We look at those that make up the earth, calcium, aluminum, silicon. Their compounds make up the rocks, the soil, clay. Um, We look at the materials that make up many of the salts, sodium, potassium, for example, magnesium. Magnesium is the salt in seawater. And then we try and understand, so how is the chemistry, how is the character of these different Elemental substances and their compounds. How is that related to where they occur in the world? How is that a manifestation or um, a quality that comes from where they where they originate? So they're not just an abstract thing about here's the nature of sulfur, let's say, but rather we look at where do sulfur compounds occur. And two interesting things that begin to give you a connection to the chemistry of sulfur is when you look at where does it occur? It occurs in volcanoes. We have sulfur compounds in great abundance coming out of volcanoes. And interestingly enough, sulfur plays an important role as a component in the structure of proteins. And what's the function of proteins? Proteins is to be a solid substance, yet flexible, that can form your tissues and tendons and sinews in your body. So we don't have scales. We have this flexible skin that is forming our, you know, our body. And protein is one of the components that helps make proteins um, so flexible that they can form, you know, all the proteins that make up your epidermis, your skin. And then we say, wait a minute, that's the same kind of a substance that forms compounds that we find in active, movable volcanoes, And in many other ways, we can see how, yes, everywhere that sulfur occurs, it seems to have this quality of supporting and enhancing flexibility. And then you look, for example, at its melting point. It's incredibly low compared to many other compounds, although many of the nonmetals have low melting points. So you see there's this typical quality or characteristic of sulfur, or of magnesium, or of iron, and the way they occur in the world and in the human body and in the role they play in their compounds. And I think somehow that helps the students have a, <clears throat> a better picture of these various things rather than just putting a periodic table on the wall and saying, okay, here's sulfur with a sp3 orbital hybridization and that's why it has a valence of four and sometimes six and so on. Those are like factoids. And You can memorize them and put them down on a test and everyone feels you're very educated and yet That's still kind of abstract whereas if you can have this sense of ah sulfur is this character That occurs in all these places and that gives students the ability for example to express their understanding in artistic ways So I say to some students when okay We've done all these experiments and you've written them up I'd like you to try and somehow summarize it by saying all these about sulfur show what so one student did a drawing one student wrote a little poem to express the character of what they saw in these science experiments so it brings art and science together and this is like what goethe was trying to do where he said i write poetry but i also had this book on the theory of colors Mm -hmm. and i also had these writings on botany and the character of plants, and maybe a path to understanding plants. So it's the marriage of science and art.
0: Right. And, um, well, I think what you were describing here, it's um, discovery plays a a very important role in that. But to be able to discover something, um, you need to be able to have... uh, Good observation. And I think that's one of the things that science tries to develop through the uh, curriculum, like this um, capacity to really observe something and be, um, observe something in, in, in really detail.
1: Yes, um, yes. And we, of course, emphasize doing actual experiments with actual things, so we don't typically have the students watch a video simulation of it. That's more convenient for some teachers. But there's something really to be said for when I put out four different alcohols and you get to watch me ignite them and how they burn and then smell them carefully and so forth. Then when we talk about their physical properties, boiling point, melting point, what they react with and so on, it's much richer than just some abstract thing you memorized. So one of the things I say to my teachers that I've been working with is we want to help the students develop an art of perception, of observing, and we want to help them develop an art of appropriate conceptualization. To really be, by 12th grade, very conscious of how am I thinking about this experiment? Because as modern quantum physics has come to understand, the way you ask the question is critical. Mm -hmm. And we know that in psychology and other areas. But science has finally learned it. That if I ask a certain kind of question, I'll I'll find certain things. But if I don't ask that kind of question, I won't even find those things. So how you ask the question is very important. And by 12th grade, it's a real step in growth to be able to be self-aware and say, ah, I see how I'm thinking about this. Not just the fact, but not just explaining the fact thinking about how I'm investigating the fact. So it's to perception, observing, and thinking about it, an art of conception.
0: And I think that's a key point um, in, well, in the whole Waldorf education, it's about asking questions. It's not Mm -hmm. about just learning things. And um, I think that's a special thing, because maybe a lot of schools do experiments and everything, but... Maybe different here. difference here is that um, first you do the experiment, you observe, and then you, you start to conceptualize things and not the other way around. And this is what we're going to prove with the experiment. This is the phenomena that you should know, and we're, now we're going to prove it, it's true. So yeah. It's the other way around. And it's right?
1: interesting. I just passed out a sheet to um, some of the science teachers. It was an article that was in the Journal of Chemical Education, which is a mainstream... Um, a publication that focuses on science teaching, particularly around chemistry, Journal of Chemical Education. And the author of the article says, well, you know, here's the simplistic, typical view of scientific method. You just mentioned that. Form a hypothesis, do some experiments, and either verify or falsify your hypothesis. But it turns out that his survey where he went out and looked at and asked questions about how do you actually do your work to many, many scientists. He says, well, it doesn't actually get practiced that way. <laughs> so he calls it the inquiry wheel, that you get intrigued by a puzzle, a question, like a student does. You go out and investigate it. And as you get into it, you have other questions that shape what you're looking for. And then you've sort of reached some kind of synthesis But that often provokes new questions. So it's this constant spiral of looking deeper and deeper. So it's not just a hypothesis, testing, verification, or falsification, as Karl Popper points out. We really can't prove anything. All we can prove is that we haven't disproved it yet. (laughs) (laughs) So this inquiry wheel is a little different approach. And I thought, this is really fascinating. It was published in a mainstream thing, and that's much closer to what we're trying to do.
0: Right, yeah. Can you give us, um, we only have like five minutes left, so Uh uh, I'm going to ask you a big question that probably should take (laughs) you a lot of time, but (laughs) um, can you give us like a brief overview of, because in weather fiduciation, uh, we always say that it's. We always say that it's developmentally appropriate, right, and right. so the curriculum um, grows as the student is growing and it changes and everything. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how does the science curriculum start and how does it change along the along the different grades yeah, in the high school? that is
1: a huge question. <laughs> I guess in in the heart of it is a couple of things. First of all that we've spent a good bit of time trying to really get a picture of these key developmental stages in childhood and young adulthood. And then we're trying to bring the subject matter in a way that's going to meet that child at that time. So, for example, in the early grades, the teacher uses story, tremendously, a lot of stories. So it's narrative and making inner pictures. In the ninth grade or eighth grade and ninth grade, it's much more crystallized. So the student needs to really see clear observations about clear things that we're talking about and then really be able to reach clear cause and effect kind of understanding and conclusions. And then by 11th and 12th grade, the young adult is able to sort of, as I said earlier, get this sort of reflective thinking about how I'm thinking, and so we bring deep questions. Like, as one time I told my students, we're going to study optics and discuss light. And here's this quote by Albert Einstein, who says, I've spent my life studying light. Many people think they know what it is, but it's much deeper than that. That's yeah. why that's in 12th grade, not in 9th grade. 9th grade, we study, how does the telephone work? How does these wires enable me to make a phone call? Yeah. And, of course, it's pretty practical as well. So the main thing is we're trying to really observe the children and really be clear about where they are, their stage and development, and as best we can to bring the material to them in a way that sort of like resonates with where they are. And it's an art, which means sometimes we have to revise it and do it a little differently, but it's constantly this interplay between the teacher and observing the student and sleeping on them and looking for inspiration on how to meet them where they are. So it's a tremendous spectrum going from preschool all the way to 12th grade, but that's a few of the little pieces of where we try and sort of reach out to sort of embrace them and meet them there.
0: Right. And at the beginning, you mentioned that um, all the students take uh, science, chemistry and biology. Yeah, and that's kind of unusual. Yeah. Why do you think that's important? What, how, because you also say, you also said that some of your students uh, after high school, they said, I didn't uh, went to, I didn't go to uh, university and study something related to science, but it was really uh, helped, uh, something that really helped me uh, during my life. How right. do you think science uh, can develop something uh, for people that are not, Going to pursue a career in science.
1: I guess two two things come to mind. One is the sense for a student if I've done my job well, which is always a striving, um, and that is that the student has this experience. I can understand this, even if I don't think I'm a sciencey person or a science nerd. I can understand this, at least the key thing that we're working on. Obviously, there's more subtle and advanced parts of it, typically, and I may give that to another student who's very interested for extra credit work. But this sense that I can understand it, not just memorize it, not just be told it. So what, what kind of a world is it if we were following things because someone told us? Whereas if I feel like I can actually understand the world and play an active role in it, now I can be a person who actually takes charge and maybe makes the world a better place. And the other is, I think science is beautiful. A, the world is a fascinating, wonderful place. And a lot of times I'm really amazed at how the students go, wow, that's incredible. That's something that we were able to show in the class. So I think that, that feeling of interest and wonder can carry them into life in any field they go into. So I'm hoping I can make my contribution, just as the the literature and the poetry teacher and the art teacher can make theirs to making their soul really rich and colorful so they can enter the world with all that as, um, let's say, a wonderful palette to paint the rest of their life.
0: Great. So thank you very much. John, for sharing with us, uh, for being uh, here in Guatemala, as I said, for the second year for the teacher training. And thank you very much for your time.
1: Okay. My pleasure. Todo bueno. (laughs)